Thank you, Steph. I don't know if some of you noticed, but um, finally, after years and years of my prayers, Pastor John seems to be growing a beard. The truly, the truly godly men have beards. To the rest of you guys, come on, get on the, get on the bus. You know, Francisco gave that prophetic word about what we bring to God. And I was thinking that a lot of the time, all I bring to God is a cry for help. And God always answers that. As he said, a broken or a contrite heart, God never rejects. Remember one time, uh, John told me that God was talking to him, and um, the subject between them came up of some broken people in the church, and the Lord said to John, and this was a, a graceful, but it was a corrective word, he said, you despise weakness, and the Lord said, I'm drawn to it. And when John told me that, it was corrective for me. We have a tendency to really judge weakness. And isn't it wonderful that God is drawn to it? Which kind of is a good opening for today's sermon. Today's sermon is called Living Outside the Religious Box. I don't know about you, but I've heard this more times than I can count. Let's just do a little survey. How many of you at one time or another have heard somebody say something like this? I really like Jesus, but I don't like his people. Ever heard that? I really like Jesus, but I don't like church. Ever heard that? Okay, how come come he's so likable and we aren't? (laughs) Because we're not like him. (laughs) Well, you know, sadly... Uh, too much of the time. That's the truth. What was it about him that made him so likable that we so often seem to lack? John asked me that question a while ago. He said, what are the things you like best about Jesus? And I came up with two things that came to my mind immediately. The first was, He's not religious. I just love that he's not religious. And the second one is that he's not judgmental. Why do I say he's not religious? Let's look at this little story briefly. This is about John the Baptist. It's in Matthew 11, verses 2 to 6. Let me just say something about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had... He was one of those people whose life is uh, very, very clear, whose life's purpose is very clear to him. He had no problem knowing why he was living or what his mission in life was. What was John the Baptist's mission in life? To identify the Messiah. To identify the Son of God who would come to die for the sins of the whole world. 
That's his sole purpose. Since he's young, he's known, this is what I'm called to. This is the one thing I've got to get right. This is the one thing that's really, really important. My life's purpose. And the Holy Spirit speaks to John. Jesus comes to get baptized by John. The Messiah. The God-man. Comes to be baptized by John. And John, of course isn't comfortable with that. The Spirit of God says he's the guy. The Spirit of God has told him he's the guy. That's the Messiah. The one thing he's been waiting to do, the thing he's got to get right, God speaks to him and says he's him. He's the one you've been waiting for. He's the one you're supposed to announce. And John obeys and says, There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Follow Him. So John is off to a good start in completing his life's mission. In fact, at that point, you could say he's finished. He's completed his life's mission. But something happens to John. When John was in prison, you see, he'd... (laughs) John didn't just announce the savior of the world. He also announced one of the big problems in the world, which was Herod, the governor. So John had a political moment. And his political moment has landed him in jail. Actually, a short time later, it cost him his life. So now he's in prison. Jesus has been going about his ministry and becoming a public figure. And John's in prison. And John hears, through people, what Jesus has been doing. This is important. What Jesus has been doing. And he sent word by his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who's to come, or are we waiting for another? Well, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said he's the one. He's been waiting all his life to hear this message. God says, he's the one. But there's something that Jesus has been doing that has caused John to question, did I really get this right? Circumstances have caused him to doubt what the Holy Spirit said to him. Have you ever had circumstances in your life caused you to doubt what the Holy Spirit said to you? The promises that he made to you? The dreams that he's given you. But then circumstances come and they're the opposite of what the dream was. And now you're doubting and you don't know. And you're fearful. Well, this is how John felt only probably hundreds of times more deeply. Because this was his life's mission to get this one thing right. Or so are we, are, are we supposed to wait for somebody else? And Jesus said, you go back and tell him this. You go back, tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. Now let's just pause here for a minute. Something that Jesus has been doing has caused John to doubt whether or not Jesus is really from God. So 
Jesus says, yes, I am. And his proof is all these miracles that he's done. So he's resting his credibility in the supernatural events that he's accomplished. All good for people. Now there's no way that John would have any problem with Jesus healing deaf people and blind people and crippled people and feeding the poor and the five thousands and this, that, and the other thing. John would have no problem with that. It's not those deeds that have caused him to doubt Jesus. It's got to be something else that's caused him to doubt Jesus. And Jesus finishes his address, which is to be taken to John, with these words. And blessed is anyone or the one who takes no offense at me. You see, John had already taken offense at Jesus. We don't know what it is, but Jesus had done some things that John was seriously offended by, and it wasn't all the great supernatural stuff. And Jesus used the word offense. It's the Greek word skandalion. It's the word we get scandal from. And it's an extremely powerful word. That translation of offense really doesn't capture what's going on inside John at all. What's going on inside John is this. Jesus has done something so offensive to him that it actually causes him to disbelieve in Jesus. The word actually means to give up your belief in someone because of something that they've done. Are you with me? So this is a really, really serious thing that's happening to John. He's not a, see, today we say, I'm offended. We usually, we're so hypersensitive today that offense means someone didn't smile at me long enough in the line at the bank. No, no, this wasn't that kind of microaggression. You know, microaggression, it's so small you need a magnifying glass to find it so you can finally be offended today and be happy. You know, I'm not happy unless I'm offended. I need to find an offense, so I'm just going to look as hard as I can to be offended. Sorry we're on a tangent, but what does that do to human relationships? Where we're hunting for reasons to call somebody something bad? Give me a break. It's not that kind of offense. This is a, this is a real... John is on the edge of giving up his belief in Jesus on account of the things that Jesus has been doing. So, I looked through the chronological Gospels and looked at all the things that Jesus had been doing between the day of the uh, John first discovered Jesus and this time that John's in prison. Well, here's the things that Jesus had been doing that caused him to doubt. In the two or three months since John baptized Jesus, here's what he's done while John was in prison. Number one, he turned over 700 bottles of water into wine. About, he turned water into wine, about 700 bottles, for a wedding in which the guests had already had too much to drink. That's awkward, isn't it? Jesus is a party hound. But it gets worse. He talked to a Samaritan woman in broad daylight who the whole town knew was guilty of serious sexual sin. A, 
Samaritans are dogs. You're not even supposed to look at them, let alone pause and have a conversation with them. And she was a woman, and you're not supposed to do that either. And she's a fallen woman, which makes her absolutely untouchable. And here's Jesus befriending, humanizing a truly broken person who is out of bounds and untouchable. Then he, it's worse. He befriends the entire village of Samaritans and gives them access to heaven. Can you imagine the frustration of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, in hearing that Jesus had actually done this for a Samaritan village? And then last Sunday, we talked about the calling of Matthew the tax collector. Did anyone remember that message? Jesus befriended the biggest traitor you could find in the Jewish community, the one person everybody absolutely hated, the one, the one kind of sinner that the Pharisees said was incapable of becoming a penitent, incapable of ever repenting, and could never be redeemed. By definition, he's a tax collector. And Jesus gives him friendship and goes and eats with his low-life friends at his house. And then Jesus feasted while he was supposed to be fasting. He didn't respect the religious institution of the Sabbath. He didn't respect the religious institution of the synagogue. He went right in. Can you imagine anyone so absolutely audacious as to go into church on a Sunday and heal somebody? What an absolute outrage. We're not here to see people healed. We're here to give offerings. We're not here to see lives changed. We're here to support the institution. People, this is church. I'm appalled at how some of you are dressed this morning. I just don't see respect for the church. And you're actually laughing through part of the message. It's not that funny. This is, this is church. This is, not, this is not for laughter. This is not for gaiety. This is not for frivolity. This is serious business. Half of you are going to hell and you don't even know it. What is wrong with you people? Other than everything that I can see. And there's Jesus. He's just, he's just not respecting the institution. Here's the coolest thing about Jesus. Every time, every time, Jesus was faced with the choice of choosing the institution versus choosing helping a human being, he always chose the person over the institution. See, he's just not religious enough. He just doesn't fit. People say, I really like Jesus, but I sure don't like the church. Gosh, I wonder why. Broke the religious law by working on the Sabbath. Like healing somebody's work. 
Like casting a demon out of someone and setting someone psyche free is hard work and we shouldn't be doing it on the Sabbath? Healing someone in church when he should have waited till the next day. Look, he could have waited till the next day, but he didn't. The reason he didn't is because he had a point to make about the institutionalization of what was supposed to be a relationship with God. What was supposed to be a relationship has turned into a religion. So he made the point. And for that alone, the Pharisees decided to kill him. (laughs) They are so in love with their institution. They're so in love with their place in it that when someone is miraculously blessed and it's out of their order, they want to kill the person that did the blessing. Come on, people. That's sick. That's evil. That's religion. So John's second thoughts are absolutely real. There's something about Jesus that John just doesn't get. And it's the same thing that infuriates the Pharisees. See, John and the Pharisees have this sad thing in common. They're both scandalized and offended by things that Jesus does. Have you ever been offended by anything that Jesus has done? I'm thinking about when someone walks into the room here who flat out just doesn't fit. Now what would someone who really doesn't fit look like when they came into this room? How about a homosexual couple? How about someone so covered in tattoos you can't find his face? How about someone who staggers in here drunk? What's our first reaction? What about someone who enjoys the service too much and ends up laughing through it? It's never happened when I teach, but I mean, (laughs) I wish, I pray, someday. What about someone that breaks out crying in the middle of worship uncontrollably and sobbing? What, What about someone who falls on the ground? What about someone with no social boundaries, no relational skills? The biggest thing that offended John and the Pharisees was that Jesus appeared to be soft on sin. He just wasn't offended enough by people who were screwing up. He didn't have a real sense of righteousness. He had no sense of propriety. He didn't respect the rules. He was just, he was soft on sin. He didn't, he didn't, didn't really hit him between the eyes when he should hit him between the eyes. 
See, the real difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is the difference between making a judgment about right and wrong and being judgmental. Think about it. You see, every day, as Christians, with the righteousness of God living in us, we have a sense of unrighteousness whenever we come across it. We will make judgments about ourselves and about others continually as to what was right and what was wrong. We're moral beings. We live in a moral universe. We make these judgments. She shouldn't have said that. He shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. We make moral judgments. People inevitably were going to make moral judgments. We can't help it. God instilled us with a conscience. He instilled us with a moral compass. But there's a difference between making moral judgments of things that we see as right or wrong and being judgmental. And it has a complete, absolute difference in how we see the person who's screwing up, including ourselves. Jesus had no difficulty making a moral judgment about somebody's behavior without being judgmental. And the Pharisees couldn't make a moral judgment about someone without being judgmental. What's the difference? Making a moral judgment is a mental act of observation in which right and wrong are identified. But judgmentalism is an attitude towards people and their failure. It is an attitude of superiority and dismissal. The judgmental person focuses on the wrong behavior because he hates the sin. He hates the sin because it is morally wrong. Because he hates sin so much, he has no trouble dismissing the sinner as nothing more than that. He's just a sinner. Dismiss. He's someone guilty of sin. He writes them off because his focus is on their behavior, and their behavior is bad. Jesus is different. His focus is always on the person and their spiritual growth. He recognizes that sin is morally wrong, but it is wrong because of its effect on the person. Sin is bad because it damages people. It prevents people from becoming everything God has designed them to be. It denies them their destiny. It prevents them from becoming all they can be with God. Jesus hates sin because he loves people. And the Pharisees hate people because they love the law. Do we hate sin because we love people? Because if we do, the people will always be first and foremost in our mind, and the sin is merely something to fix. And if we don't, the person is someone to reject. Jesus corrected the woman caught in adultery, but he did so after he gave her his acceptance. The judgmental person hates people because he loves the law. He will only give acceptance once he is sure they've properly received his correction. But for Jesus, love always comes first. And love brings transformation. And correction brings shame. I forgot. It was really good and I really liked it. 
Love brings transformation and correction merely brings shame. And shame leads to self-hate and lethargy and hopelessness, which leads to more sin. Exactly. Jesus always loves first. And here's a personal story I want to tell you. All of my life, I've been hypersensitive to shame and to my own moral failure. I've got the world's best moral compass, and it's always pointing a finger at me. And I've lived with this sense of shame. It started in something that happened when I was four years old, and, and um, it's, it's lasted my whole life. And I was seeing a counselor about it. And we're exploring where this sense of shame came from. And we, we, the, the, the thing that happened when I was four came up and, and we were dealing with that. And she said, well, let's just, let's just wait and see what God has to say about it. You know, that's always the right thing to do. Instead of blathering on with your psycho theories and your psycho babble, why don't we just be still for a minute or two and ask the Lord what he wants to say about it? He's almost always better at it. No, he's always better at it. He's always better at it. Because he does it just the right way. And here's the right way he did it for me that day. She said, let's just wait on this and see what the Lord has to say. So I closed my eyes. And all of a sudden, in my imagination, this scene developed. It was very vivid. I was on top of, um, I think it was Mount Soledad, looking out over the Pacific. And this beautiful, perfectly beautiful, sunny day. And then I noticed, as I was standing there, that Jesus was standing on my left-hand side. That's a pretty cool vision. But he, he wasn't saying anything. He was just looking out at the ocean. And he had a big smile on his face, because it was really beautiful. And I, I turned to him, and I said... How can you have someone as screwed up as me working for you? That's my opening line. That's a shame-based statement. How can you have someone as messed up as me working for you? And he didn't say anything. He just kept looking at the ocean with this big smile on his face. And I got frustrated, and I thought he didn't hear me. So I said, look how many of my motives were impure how often I was doing things for my own good and belonging and, 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 and sense of significance rather than doing things for you. Look at that. And Jesus picked up his hand and he pointed to the ocean and he said, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And it just made me mad. Like, I don't think you're taking me seriously right now. I've got these deep, messed up issues we need to deal with. And you're busy looking at the ocean. Look how many times my motives were impure. Doesn't it sicken you? And he just looked again and he said, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And I said, how many of my actions were selfishly motivated? And he turned to me and he said, far less than you think. And for the parts that were, you have me. Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? <laughs> See, and all of a sudden, I realized this amazing thing. 
He wasn't interested in my sin and my failure. He was interested in sharing something beautiful with me. And he said it again, isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? And all of a sudden, I experienced this wave of his love and acceptance, and it just broke me, and I cried and cried and cried with joy, and my shame was gone. And isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? I want to end with another story because it's my all-time favorite. See, God isn't religious. Jesus is not religious. The Holy Spirit is not religious. They put you first, not the institution. They view your failure as something to heal you from so that you can fulfill your destiny in them. God is not sin-centered. He's not easily offended. We had this church in Canada and it was a really cool place. We rented a building down in East Calgary, down in the rough area, a big warehouse. It was right by the train tracks. You could hear the trains going by. And we turned it into a rock club. We had like a world-class cappuccino machine and we had the stage and a really good sound system and we'd bring in big-name Christian bands and on uh, the days that the big-name Christian bands weren't playing, one of our worship bands would play down there. And they were good. Our bands were good. And uh, Dean was rocking out one Friday night. And the kids in those days were into the whole mosh pit thing, you know, where you all rush forward at the stage and the kids are all bumping into each other and slamming heads and, and people are stage diving off the stage down on top of them. And I mean, it's, it's a rock concert. It's chaos. It's, it's very entertaining to watch if you're not in it. So... Dean, the worship leader's band, was, was rocking out, and they were, just, they were just having the best time. And Dean's father, really godly guy, really, really good man. They ran a soup kitchen, you know, amongst the poor. I mean, they were, they were like seriously committed Christians. Dean's father's at the back of the room watching this worship because they're playing worship songs, you know. They're not doing Sweet Home Alabama or something like that. They're... They're doing worship songs. They're singing God worship songs. And the kids are in chaos and jumping up and down and smacking into each other and just having an absolute ball. They're just having a great party. And Dean's father's at the back of the room getting really seriously offended because it offends him that these kids are not worshiping. And this is worship music. And he's becoming more and more offended. And he says to God, you need to stop this. Like God needs to stop this. You, know? you need to do something about this. This isn't right. What these kids are doing, this isn't worship. You need to do something about this. And of course, God doesn't do anything. And it goes on a little longer. And, and his dad's getting more and more frustrated. He says, God, this isn't worship. You need to stop this. And God doesn't stop it. And it keeps on going. And finally he says, God, this isn't worship. 
And the Lord speaks to him and says, I know it's not worship, but I love to watch my children play. Come on. People, come on. I love to watch my children play. We've got this terrible view of God. This completely inaccurate religious view of God. That the things he cares most about is your religious performance. And how long you pray in the morning. Doing your prayers like their work. Turning being with him into work. And reading your Bible so you can correct your Baptist neighbor. By the way, by the way, by the way, good luck with that. So you can spout verses on Sunday and sound like you really know the word. Like that God cares so much about the religion and the institution. So we've so spiritualized him religiously that he's just this cranky, crabby old man. One time God told me, he said, you trust me with your ministry, but you don't trust me with your recreation. You believe I'm interested in your ministry and I'll advance your ministry, but you have fear every time you wish for something like a boat trip or a RV trip or something just that's fun. You trust me with all the serious religious stuff, but you don't trust me with your entertainment. He said, I care as much what you do in your entertainment and you having fun as I care about you doing your preaching stuff. He said, I really wish you'd trust me with those things. So I said, okay. I want an RV and I want a boat. I want an RV and I want a boat. A couple months later, my friend Dennis the Prophet from San Francisco says, I'm going up to Washington to go fishing with a friend up there. I said, really, where are you going? Because that's where I used to sail all the time was the Gulf Islands in the Pacific Northwest in Canada. He said, where are you going? He said, Friday Harbor. I said, I love Friday Harbor. What are you going to do? We're going to go fishing with my friend in his boat. Can I come? Like it took that long to get, can I come? He said, I'll, I'll phone him and see. He said, yes. So we go up there and we're fishing in this guy's boat. And the conversation, you know, he, he realizes I really love boating. Like I'm really serious about this. This is a high point in my life. And I said, I just want to bring my wife up. I just, I just want to take Shelly boating for a week in the Pacific Northwest. I want her to see what I've spent most of my life doing and we've never really shared it together. I need to charter a boat. He says, use mine. What? Yeah, take mine. I got a boat I didn't pay for. Yeah. Then a little while later, my prophet friend Dennis buys an RV. Use mine. Now I got a boat and an RV. I didn't pay for either of them. Isn't God good? 
See, he cares about all the details of your life. And he cares about your failures as much as he cares about your successes. We always come to him with our successes so we can feel good about ourselves. And most of the time, he's really looking at the deeper issues that really matter to us. And he's waiting for us to come and bring him the things that concern us. That most of the time we just want to hide. And his reactions to us are never religious. What is it that you're afraid to bring to him? What is it you don't want to talk about? What is it you really worry about? You don't even want to bring it up. What are the insecurities that haven't gone away? The issues you still struggle with. If you really had the courage, what would you say to him that's honest? How has he disappointed you? Don't sit here and say he hasn't disappointed you. There are no unanswered prayers in your life. There are no things you're still holding out for and wanting that he hasn't done yet. And it's causing you anxiety and you're beginning to doubt him and circumstances have changed like John's situation and maybe you're offended with him. Tell him. Tell him. He's not judgmental. Maybe there's a reason it hasn't been answered yet. Talk to him. Tell him the truth. Let's close our eyes. Let's do it right now. He's telling me to tell you, no matter what you say, you're not going to get judged. He's not going to judge you. All that's going to happen is your relationship's going to go deeper. And you're going to receive more peace that you really need. What do you need to say to him right now? What do you need to say to him that you haven't wanted to say because you thought it would damage the relationship? Just tell him. Are you mad at him? Father, this is why I'm mad at you. And I'm sorry, but I am. Father, this is what I need to say to you. This is what I need to get off my chest. Father, this is what I'm really worried about.
Father, this is how I need your help. This is where I need your help, Lord. Father, I can't fix this. This one's beyond me. Father, this is what I've been judging myself for. And all it's done is caused more shame. Father, what do you say about this? Father, what do you want to say to me right now? Pay attention. Father, this is, what, this is what I want to say to you right now. What do you want to say to me? Now listen. What thought comes to mind? What image appears? What Bible verse rises up in your mind? What emotion begins to touch your heart? Listen. Father, would you please tell each one of us right now what you like about us? I believe you want to do that. Father, please tell each, each one right now, this is what I like about you. Now listen to what he says. What did he say? What did he say he likes about you? Let's, let's have a little worship time where we tell each other what God said he likes about you. Say it out loud so everybody can hear. Hmm? Man, I'll tell you what, authenticity. He loves that. What else? Hmm? Your embrace. He loves it when you reach out to him and take hold of him. Your emotions. He's fine with your emotions, Josh. He's fine with your passion. What else? Hmm? Your spirit. that you need him. (laughs) Yeah. What else? Sense of humor. Who said that? I claim that for myself. You You stole my word. Leave it alone. What else? What else? What else does he like about you? What did he say? Come on. Sweet. What else, Mary? He likes your laughter and playfulness and so do the rest of us. What? I missed that. Right on. Right on.
thinking about me. You know, it sounds weird, but a minute ago, he said, I like that you care about my reputation. I want so much that we would know him like he really is. Because if you know him like he really is, you can't help but love him. And you can't help but serve him. Because he's so good. And he's so different than what we think about him most of the time. So much better. Well, I think shame got its butt kicked this morning. I think shame took a hit. And, the, and correctly so, and the beauty of God was a little clearer than it was before we walked in. And that's so wonderful. One more song and we're out of here. Let's do it. Let's worship together in the goodness of God. Let's stand, everybody. Shit!
cold to the hopeless, giving his heart to the broken, sharing his home with the orphan. He's the joy, he's the joy, he's the hope of the nations. The Father's heart we're embracing. He is the song we're declaring. He is the joy. Put our hands together, yeah. Let hope arise. 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 I just forgot something. I just, I just forgot. We should, we should never, ever leave here without having an opportunity to receive prayer. And uh, foolish me. Would the prayer team come down and get at the front? And if you've got any need whatsoever, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Relational, financial, emotional, job-related, family-related, doesn't matter whatever it is. You come forward if you need anything from God. Come forward so we can pray for you. Otherwise, get out of here. Why so downcast, oh, oh my soul, put your hope in God alone. Why so downcast, oh, oh my soul, put your hope in God alone. Why so downcast, oh, oh my soul, put your hope in God alone. Why so downcast, oh, oh my soul, put your hope in Put your hope in, why so downcast, oh, oh, my soul. Put your hope in God, oh, why so downcast, oh, oh, my soul. Hope arise, let 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 hope arise.
See? 